Okay, everybody. We'll get started. We'll let any latecomers come in late, but there's a lot to cover. Uh, if you want to follow along in the scriptures, um, we'll be praying. Our opening prayer will come from the 17th chapter of uh, St. John's Gospel. I threw it up on my messy board there. John 17, 1 through 5. Okay. It's great too. For those of you using the um, the the Didache Bibles, they're going to be a little different. Okay, the text will be a little different, and just for your sake, it's a better text than what I have. So. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When Jesus had said this, He raised His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to Your Son, so that Your Son may glorify You. Just as You gave Him authority over all people, so that He may give eternal life to all You gave Him. Now this is eternal life, that they should know You, the only true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me, Father, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. St. Joseph, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, this week we're focusing on uh, the creed, uh, the offertory, and the secret um, of the Mass. Of course, before I get to those things, I'm going to just cover some other stuff because there's always other things uh, to cover. Um, we will be using your folder, so we'll be working through the, um, the right of the Mass. And then also, um, at each table, in each spot you could possibly sit, uh, you should have there uh, the propers for Sunday, for the first Sunday of Advent, because Advent is this Sunday, okay? We start Advent. And then, uh, along with that is the Athanasian Creed, okay? So... Um, not that we're going to spend a lot of time in the Athanasian Creed, but since I'm preparing to cover the Creed within the Mass, I couldn't help myself. It's just, it's too good. And if you're not familiar with the Athanasian Creed, I want you just to go home with the Athanasian Creed so you read it. Okay? And uh, maybe when I'm done covering the Creed, you'll do more than read it. Since it's not something to be read, it's something to be prayed. Uh, I began tonight, uh, and I chose the 17th chapter of John. If you're familiar with the, the Gospels, it comes from uh, the chapters uh, pertaining to the Last Supper. Um, and, of course, John's Gospel is unique in that it doesn't have any institution narrative. Um, and so the, the, the discourse of the Last Supper in John's Gospel is uh, quite intimate, uh, lengthy, a discourse. It's, it's a gospel, obviously, where we see the washing of the feet 
Um, we see uh, the apostles being consecrated in truth. Um, we're given the greatest commandment uh, in John's gospel to love as Christ uh, had loved. Um, it's his great, um, our Lord's discourse on the vine and the branches. So there's all these, all these imageries at the Last Supper that show this deep sense of union, this deep sense of living faith that comes with being united with, with Christ. Um, and the 17th chapter uh, is the prayer that our Lord offers um, before he's handed over. And so it's sort of, we're going to cover uh, the offertory and, and the secret uh, tonight. And I just thought it was fitting to use the 17th chapter since the, there's a sense of offertory there. There's a sense of self-offering that our Lord is, is giving of himself in that prayer. And uh, more poignantly, it's, it's the Mass, right? And um, within the this, this central nature of the Mass and pitted right in the middle of the Mass are these realities which after they're prayed, the Eucharist or Jesus becomes physically visible. In other words, we see Him in His glory. Um, and so it's, I just want to breathe a little life to the 17th chapter of John for you so when you go back and read it, it's just not the 17th chapter of John. It's in the Mass we see the glory of the Lord. We see His glory. That's, that's really profound. So there, that's a freebie. Um, I do want to look at uh, some other texts, so we'll, we'll pull those out too. Um, a brief word on Advent and the liturgy of Advent. Um, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but Sunday begins Advent. And um, so I want to look at tonight the offertory for Advent, since it's proper. Um, that is in your little pamphlet, and then also the secret, okay, the little, the little secret prayer, okay, that's there. You don't have to look now, but it's there. We'll get there. Um, Advent is, is unique in that it's a penitential season. Uh, oftentimes, it, uh, Catholics sort of receive it as the lightweight season uh, because it has so many feasts in it, wonderful feasts, exuberant feasts, Lights and Our Lady and um, the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Juan Diego, um, St. Lucy, St. Nicholas. Like, how do you practice penance? Right? Um, when you have so many things to celebrate. And I just wanted to give that reminder that just Advent is truly a time uh, to repent. And so I gave you all of the, the readings as well for Sunday. Um, and I want you to pay attention over the next four weeks to the readings. Um, they're the Fit Hits the Shan readings. That's what they are. Um, they're, they're unmistakable. And uh, as Catholics, it's good that we, we allow ourselves to be formed by the liturgy. That while we're preparing for the crib, the crib has already come. It's already come, folks. Jesus isn't reborn. And so there's a different type of Advent that the church in her wisdom calls to mind, and that's that you will be judged. That there is judgment coming. Um, and that God's mercy cannot, can never be mocked. Um, he has the last word and the final word. And Advent, uh, inasmuch as we lead to the crib, the Christ who is present in the liturgy, is communicating to us 
that you have to reckon with him. You ha- we have to, I have to, we have to reckon with him. And the world has to reckon with him. Um, and the incarnation is the physical indictment on God's behalf against sinful man. And that little baby still comes to judge the quick and the dead. Right? He is the ruler and king of the earth. Um, and, and the season, we can sort of move from that. So I want to uh, encourage you uh, this Advent to both celebrate it, but keep it penitential. Okay? Um, the parish will be providing these little booklets. Um, uh, they should be available on, on Sunday um, for things you can do in the home as a family during the Advent season, the ways you can celebrate it and call it to mind. Okay? Now, all that being said, uh, it is different than Lent. Okay? Um, so uh, there's something about calling to mind salvation history and all the things that God has done to, to save us. But the church doesn't want us to forget that Christ is saving us from death. Okay? Um, and that this sort of relationship with the incarnation is a, a very real reality that we, there's, a, there's an accounting of our life, an accounting of our deeds. Okay? Right? That's not to make Jesus scary. It's, that's the truth. Okay? So that's, I think it's really neat that um, tonight we're going to look at these three areas um, of the Mass. Okay? Um, so a little bit on the creed. Uh, of course, I've got the catechism up there. Um, so before we actually get to the liturgy in Mike Tober fashion, I want to look at the catechism. Um, it's interesting, my catechism's falling apart. Um, but the entire first section of the whole catechism is the creed. Okay, so um, it literally the first few hundred pages is a dissection of the creed itself, which we will be, be looking at. Um, however, on paragraph 185, which I put on the board, these are, are things about the creed before we get into it that I think will help us the next time we go to Mass. Okay? So, just before paragraph 85, we have the Apostles' Creed, and then next to it, we have what's known as the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. So, um, the creeds in history have developed somewhat, primarily in response to, to heresy or error. Okay? The creeds we have today, as expressed in the church, are complete. Um, I don't foresee any uh, new articulations to the creed. The creed's pretty darn drum tight. It has repudiated all of the errors against the Trinity and all of the errors against the person of Christ. Um, it's, it's bulletproof. Okay. Um, the first thing I want to just mention, and I put the word up there. I put symbol. Okay. Um, the creeds of the church oftentimes have been referred to as a symbol or a sign. Okay? Um, these symbols uh, can be quite short. We're going to look at a couple from Scripture. Um, and obviously they can be quite elaborate. You're looking at, I put the Athanasian Creed on, on the table for you, which is an articulation of the church's um, 
belief in the Trinity and the Incarnation, and then also certain dogmas of the faith that one must believe in order to be saved. Okay? Um, so this notion of symbol, right? Symbols obviously communicate something, and in communicating them, they demand something from us, some sort of acceptance of the symbol that shows some sort of understanding, okay? It, w- it holds true that the creeds or the symbols of faith communicate those things that bind us. And anywhere there's division, there's always a breakdown of belief. Okay? Um, this is precisely why the creed in the Mass is situated where it is. Okay? It is the hinge. It is the symbol. It is the place by which those who believe profess and pray that which binds us and holds us as one. That becomes a living reality in Christ Himself in Holy Communion. It's also the place early in the church um, where those who were catechumens who were studying to enter the church, uh, they left at this part of the Mass. So as soon as the sermon was done, the catechumens left the liturgy. Okay, this is why the, this whole first part of the Mass that is in your folder is referred to as the Mass of Catechumens. Okay, all these pre-things that we've been studying right, lead one to the place where they then profess. And of course, catechumens aren't ready to profess. Okay, but what do catechumens do? They study the creed. And um, in the early church, on Holy Saturday in the morning, they would have finally professed the creed and then they would have been baptized in the morning on Holy Saturday after professing the creed. And the, the early church saw the liturgy extending, well, the church still does, from Holy Thursday all the way through to Easter is one giant liturgy, one giant mass, one giant ceremony. And so the catechumens are baptized within that, that whole And then finally, in the evening at twilight, they would walk into church with a candle and receive the rest of the sacraments, receive their Lord, the person they professed in symbol, in sign, and then becomes a living reality. Okay? Um, I just think that's really neat. Okay? Um, I think this is really neat too. This comes from uh, paragraph 197. I want to read it to you. As on the day of our baptism, when our whole life was entrusted to the standard of teaching, that's what the creed is, it's the standard. Let us embrace the creed of our life-giving faith. To say the credo with faith is to enter into communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how often is the creed like we just like, there it is. It's nice. Okay, time to say the creed. Let's spit it out and move on. But think about where it's situated in the Mass. And we'll look at what it expresses. But now you know why it's there. The creed 
allows one to enter into communion with the Trinity. Who made the Trinity knowable to us? Who revealed the Trinity to us? Jesus did. And so there it is. Like the great flag, the great standard in the Mass. The creed. The symbol becomes flesh. The Trinity now is accessible to us. We see the image of the Father and the Son. We receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So now, from now on, every time you go to Mass, and every time that creed is there and you pray it, or you sing it, hopefully, in your mind you're thinking, I'm going to enter into communion with the Blessed Trinity through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to enter into communion with God Himself. And that, that's not, that's not a, um, that can't be and should not be understood as just a sort of, sort of like handshake communion. It means that you're brought into God Himself. You share in divine life. You take on divine nature. That's what communion does. It allows one to share in the divine nature of of God. That's what Christ opens up for us. Okay, so it's it's not like this communion isn't like donuts at Sandy's. Okay, that's really not communion. Okay, that's too worldly. The Catechism goes on to say, not only this communion with the Trinity, but also communion with the whole church. Now you can see why catechumens had to leave. Okay? They weren't ready yet. They weren't ready yet to profess this and to receive it and receive the person in the Eucharist. And St. Ambrose says this, this creed is the spiritual seal. It's our heart's meditation. And an ever-present guardian. The creed is a spiritual seal. It is your heart's meditation. Since it professes the two truths that everything rests upon as Catholics. That God is one in three and that Jesus, the second person Trinity, took flesh and saved us with it as God. Okay? He goes on to say, it is unquestionably then the treasure of our soul. Okay? That's, that's pretty amazing. Okay? That's just situating the creed. Okay? It's a seal. It's our heart's meditation. It's... It's, it's the life of our soul. Okay? And look at the space it takes up. It's like the giant elephant in the mass room. It comes, it comes barreling into the liturgy to sort of wedge a stake in the ground. And it gives justification uh, to history 
It situates history. It levels the playing field. It catches us up. And those things we're meant to be caught up in. It's the heart's delight, or at least it should be. It can't be passing. And so Christ in his mind says, I don't want the creed to be passing. I want to wedge it right here in the center of the mass. Because it needs to be like a stake driven through your heart. It's the creed. Men, women, saints, their entire existence has been measured on this. The church is measured on it. It's the infallible revelation of the saving truth of God. Councils have practically sweat blood over it. Okay? Men have fought. Heresies have been defined. Air has been cast to the side. And with each passing generation, the Mass keeps Christ crystal clear, keeps Him visible. It's pretty cool. You might say, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna be bold when 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 Mr. Bading listens to this, he's probably gonna like rend his garment. <laughs> but you might say that from the beginning of the creed through the secret, right? Which is ultimately through the offertory. The secret kind of comprises the back end of the offertory, which sort of comes to a conclusion at the washing of the hands. And we'll start looking at the right here in a minute. You might say all, all of this is this sort of giant offertory. This offering. Okay? This willingness to correspond with what God has revealed. This, this willingness on our part to articulate, to give verbiage, to, to give our life to. Okay? Um, I want to look at these other two scripture texts too because um, we do find sort of simplified versions of creedal formula in the scriptures. Although nowhere in the scriptures do we find uh, the Apostles' Creed. We We don't find it. And even the larger creed we pray is a sort of elongation of those 12 articles of faith that are attributed to the Apostles. Okay? But these... Two creedal formulas I want to look at um, before we get to the rite itself. The first one's in John chapter 11. You'll recognize this. It's the raising of Lazarus. And it comes on the heels of uh, the discourse with Martha and Jesus. And... um, I've got John eleven twenty five through 27. And of course, Martha's, Mary hasn't showed up yet. Um, we've got a turn of events on the, on the two ladies here. Um, but Martha's gone out to see our Lord. And of course, she's distraught because her brother's dead, right? And Jesus assures her that her brother will live. And... Jesus says, well, she says, I know he'll live. He'll live on the resurrection on the last day. And in verse 25, we sort of have this little formulaic 
answer. Okay? Something we believe in. We actually profess it, this article of faith in the creed. But Jesus tells her, not just that there will be a resurrection, he associates it with his very being. Right? With his, with his nature. Right? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she gives us an early creedal formula. Yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who is coming into the world. Okay. It's just basic Christological creed. Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. And she believes. Okay. He's kind of stake in the ground. Um, some of you should be familiar with Matthew 16. Of course, it's the great papal chapter. But we also have Peter's statement of faith. And the reason I'm pointing to the, these Christological sort of creedal, short creedal expressions are because it's Christ. Christ is the, he is the center of the creed. Right? No, no Christ, no creed. Okay? Right? So um, it's from Him that the whole expression of the creed takes shape. Okay? It's pretty neat. So I've got Matthew 16 starting at verse 16 and you guys know this. This is where Jesus is asking everyone, right? Who do people say that I am? And You know, they're like, oh, he, he, you're this and you're that. And, but then he says, but who do you say that I am? And again, there's those words, I am. He's, it's not just like, who do people think or, or what do people think I'm doing? I am is a reference to, to his divinity. Um, it's never used lightly in scriptures, so it's a, it's a reference to his being. Who do, who do you think I am? Right? Who do you say that I am? Okay. And it's Peter. Verse 16, Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's creedal. It's a, it's a short expression of faith. It's an articulation of an infallible truth that's revealed by God. Okay. What's really neat is that in verse 17, we're told that Peter didn't come up with it. Right? Um, Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father has revealed it. Okay. And therefore, Peter shows himself um, a worthy vessel to revelation even though he's a total wonk quite often and, and quite ambitious and um, tries to run his own show, um, nonetheless, he proves himself that he's willing. He's, willing he's, a, he's, he's capable of hearing what the Father's revealed. And he, in turn, articulates it with his very being, with himself. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that, that's exactly what happens 
at Mass. Everything that's in the creed that we pray has been revealed by God. It's never to be prayed lightly as if I'm just getting through the creed. Are you and are we willing to be open to what God has revealed and express it in return? Will we be like Peter and receive it? And, and say it. Pray it. Will it be our seal? Our stamp? Will it be the hinge point by which we enter into communion with the Trinity and the Mass? Now the creed is really special, isn't it? What are, what are just from your guys' knowledge, what are some things about the creed uh, within the Mass that make it unique? What are some of its unique characteristics? What are some of the, the trappings or ceremonies that surround it or are part of it? Yeah. Like what? What? Like what do you mean? I, I feel like what it says is that, that the church is an apostolic church. Okay. So, so we're reminded of the history of the apostles and that they started it for us. And you like the bottom part of the creed. Yes. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic, apostolic church. Yeah, okay. That reminder of history that this is where it started all the way back here. It's the same. You are still doing the same. Okay. Cool. Any anything else? Come on, you guys. You pray the creed all the time, Kim. I love it when we kneel for genuflect at the Christ was conceived. Okay, so um, you're talking about the express when we articulate the incarnation, that by the power of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, He became man, right? And at at, at incarnatus est is that point by which the Church genuflects, right? The members of the body genuflect. And if you notice when it's, when it's chanted, that section of the creed is sort of strung out. The chant takes on some, Mr. Bating will love this, right? It, ta- it sort of gets pulled, gives a little, little more breath so that the members of the body can hail their infant king with a sense of piety. It's not just a snap down on the knee, it's a we 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 genuflect, okay? John? Okay. It means so much to me because making another commitment. Yeah, and and it should because it is a it is a sort of recommitment to your baptismal promise. To the faith that you received at your baptism. So it's personal. Okay? It's really personal. And I don't mean just personal for you. I mean personal in that it is an expression of your belief in your living relationship with the Son of God. With God Himself and the Trinity. Okay? Yes? I like that it's succinct. It's well stated. There leaves nothing to be interpreted any other way other than that, you know, 
God, true God. Yes. Yes. No, but at the same time, you get lost in it. Right. Just like God. Yeah. All, all of the creeds bear this unique paradox. They are simple. Like God. God is the simplest thing that exists. There's nothing more simple than God. Why? Because He's one. Remember when you were a kid? One. My cousin Richard, he only got one cookie. It's all my aunt allowed him. One cookie. Okay? It's like this inside joke in our family. It's the simplest thing. One. What makes one even more simple, if one isn't simple enough, is that it can't be divided. When, when, when something that's of one can't be divided, can't break apart. That's God. Therefore, God, being one and indivisible, is the simplest thing in all of existence. There. Isn't that great? But at the same time, He's eternal. And because we're so difficult and complicated, we start trying to pull Him apart. And we can get lost in Him. And all of, all of the creeds, and by all of the creeds here, I mean the Nicene Creed, the, the Nicene-Constantinople Creed that we pray in the Mass, and the Athanasian Creed, all bear those marks. They are all simple in their articulation, complete, and yet, at the same time, you could take three words and write volumes about them. I'm going to say, I'm going to share something about the power of the creed. Yeah. Catholic, he told me this years later that there were words in the creed he just couldn't say. Like, he knew he didn't believe that, and he knew he couldn't say that. So it shows, like, the reality of what yes. we're saying. And that, you know, he, he had that power, just it was so powerful that he wasn't ready to say it. Yeah. And even at the children's baptisms, there were words that he just couldn't say. Yeah. Isn't that something? No. The reality of how I, like, amazing powerful it is. Yeah, that, that is something. That, that, and that, that reinforces the notion of um, how, how Catholics view the Eucharist, too. And that it's just not reducible to, I only believe this one thing. I believe that the Eucharist is Jesus. Well, that can mean any number of things. But when you receive Jesus, in some way you receive that which you professed. You actually are, are articulating with your whole body of belief in every single teaching that the Catholic Church professes to be revealed by God. Every time you receive Holy Communion. It's just not reducible to, I think that's Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus. But in doing so, you also, with your whole body, say, I believe in all of the things that the Catholic Church teaches to be revealed by God. All of them. Purgatory. Angels. The Assumption. The Immaculate Conception. Papal Infallibility. The Rejection of Artificial Contraception. The Dignity of Human Life. Everything. You, it, you, it's all or nothing. Okay. Okay. 
I think that's really cool because right, that's what Jesus came to do. All or nothing, right? And then he gets you in there, all or nothing. Okay? All or nothing. Is there, is there anything else in the creed? You guys, this is cool. You guys are, yes. Mm-hmm. Does that, I mean, historically, has that just always been in place, in that place? Yes. So there's other parts of the creed, though, that I think are also spectacular. Like, oh, yeah. He ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven. That's totally spectacular. Why don't we jump? Why don't we jump? <laughs> 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 Okay, so um, the, 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 the root of the genuflection comes from at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. So let's just think liturgically here for a moment since the class on the Mass, right? The liturgy has around Christ throughout the year a number of places where prostrations, bows, or genuflections take place. All of them are around Jesus' sacred humanity. All of them. Um, and not just to divorce his humanity from his divinity. I mean, he's God, made man. But his, his humanity is something sacred in that it's the instrument by which you have received your salvation. His body is sacred. It's divine. Um, and there's this notion that even though he shares in our humanity, there's something greater than us that we acknowledge. And that's good for us. Okay, so... Within the liturgy, we've got on Good Friday, the, pre, the priest will lay on the ground, right? Um, on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, the church will commend the faithful to genuflect when you see the cross on that day. Or to bow. Because that is the sign of our salvation in which our Lord redeems us. Of course, within the, the creed, we genuflect at the mystery of the, when Christ actually is, enters into the world, the incarnation. Um, in the old form, that genuflection, the form we're studying, is all year. And the, in the Novus Ordo Mass, um, they're, they're, at the creed, it's a bow, which no one does. Very few people do. I mean, I've been to Mass all over the place, and you get to that part of the creed, and no one's bowing which is actually really sad because it's, it's part of who we are. We pray what we believe, right? That's our model for this class, right? Lex serendi, lex credendi. Um, but in the Novus Ordo, on the Feast of the Annunciation and on Christmas, you genuflect during the creed. So the two main celebrations of the incarnation. Okay, so it, the, this is ancient. This sort of recognition, this embodiment. Um, during the, uh, uh, the Mass of um, Palm Sunday and the Good Friday liturgy, we genuflect or kneel when Christ gives up his soul. Right during the Gospel, right? We actually get down on our knees. Why? Because his body is sacred. It's good for us, okay? And we're lower members of the body. And that's okay. No one in this room comprises the head of the body. He animates our life. 
And so there's this sort of visceral acknowledgement that I'm just a lower member of the one body of Christ. That's cool. Okay? It brings hierarchy. It brings a sense of order uh, to make these, these sacred actions. Okay? Um, any, anything else? That's a great question, by the way. Anything else you notice in the creed, Kim? Sing it. Sing it. Let her rip, Kim. Right. So I'm going to say this really loud tonight into the microphone, okay? Because this is an ongoing thing I have here. The creed has always been sung in the history of the church. It's not just, the Council of Nicaea didn't just articulate the creed, they sang the dang thing. It, it's not like it sat there off on the side for a while and they went, oh, let's, let's like make this, it immediately became part of the living worship of the church. It immediately became something that is sung. And it, it is, it's written to music. And so it's abnormal to say it in the Mass. It is. It's abnormal. It's not normal just to say the creed. The creed is sung. And it should be sung at every Mass. There. Sung at every Mass. Okay? Um, sung at every Mass. It should be sung at every Mass. And if you're not comfortable with it, get over it. It's time to grow up and go, wait a second. This is sung for a reason. I need, to, I need to conform myself to Christ and not the other way around. And let yourself grow with it. And if it's a, a tone you don't know real well, Kim, then just, you know what I mean? Sing it in your heart. Until, yeah, but otherwise, let's belt it out. Yeah, no. No, sing it. Sing it if you know it. And maybe enough of us can get those 930 masters singing the creed too. Okay? I think we started singing it actually and we petered off a little bit. We sort of like got the water going. And I, just so you guys know, it's coming back. Okay? But I've been sort of harping on that for a while now. We should be singing the creed. Sing the creed. And we already go an hour and 15 minutes anyway. What's an hour and 20, right? Uh oh, 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 oh the, um, just in terms of the. Just in terms of something that strikes me with, with the Apostles' Creed, with with, um, with 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 the with the profession of of Jesus Christ, the kind of kind of, kind of the, the longest part of it between between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. What, what what strikes me is the a, a, a few historical claims that that that. that that, that any that, that any historian or or, 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 just, or just, just any human would would, would fully confirm like like he like he suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified and died and was buried so so it has it, it, it has those indisputable uh, kind of non-theistic historical claims correct but but then but then it, it, it embedded into it. It, 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 it's, a, it's a creed that that, that 
that, that, that sets Christians apart in terms of what, what they truly believe about, mm-hmm. uh, uh, about, about, about Jesus' virgin birth, about, about Jesus' resurrection, uh, about, about Jesus' ascension. So I, 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 I like how there's it includes it, it kind of includes those those, those undisputable historical claims, but but but, but then but, but then puts it into a, a Christian theological context of of, 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 of what. Of what, what, what we what, what we truly believe theologically, and, mm-hmm. and, and why and, and, and why it's so important. Yeah, Amen. I mean, it it, it everything comes from the Trinity, from God, through His Son, into this world yeah. by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything from the Father through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the creed is set up that way. And if we, I don't know how many weeks we are into this class, but this should start getting to be tattooed in the inside of your eyelids. It's literally impossible to get in the building without this sort of over-redundancy of Trinity, Incarnation, Trinity, Incarnation, Trinity, Incarnation, Trinity, Incarnation, knuckleheads. Okay? Yes, Mary? No, this needs to be in the creed. Oh, no, 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 not that, not that. Why these points yeah. are in the creed yeah. and not other things? I know. You know? I mean... Uh, there's more that we believe, and it's not included. Correct. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that, that the essentials, these essentials, and I wish, I, I wish all of us could go be a fly in the wall at Nicaea, right, and figure out what... The only thing that we have is that the Holy Spirit compelled these people. That we have a living reality of Christ's promise in those chapters of John's Gospel that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. And they weren't, at least at Nicaea, they weren't debating uh, the bodily assumption of Mary. There's no debate there. Actually, there's never been a debate there. They're debating or at least Arius was claiming that Christ wasn't God. He was just a like hyper-exalted man. So because it's, it doesn't mean, like, when you say essential, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you believe in the Eucharist, which is the source and summit of our faith. Yeah, was, and so it yeah. almost makes me think that, I don't know, this yeah. is just because we didn't even include that. No, it wasn't disputed. So, oh, so you're saying that these are the things that... Oh, the creed definitely not only gives the essentials, but the creed we pray at the Mass is one that is given sort of flesh by dispute, by, by attack. And Christ refutes with full authority. Eh. Nope, I'm really God. Eh. Nope, the Western Trinitarian Arianism... And Toledo needs to be solved by 
the filioque clause at Trent. So at, at that point, or at, at not Trent, but um, sorry, Trent's killer, but it's uh, Florence. So they were disputing, for example, that one whether or not Jesus was God. No, the one no, not necessarily, but certainly we go, we make a huge jump from the Apostles' Creed to Nicaea, from Nicaea to uh, Constantinople. And so this sort of creed at Nicaea is you have, you have these sort of minor elaborations. Okay? But remember, the Eucharist is Jesus. Yeah. Yes? Um, there is some historical folk that like to think that Nicholas was punching Arius. I mean, whether he really did, you know, is, I don't know. Um, there's some scholars that are adamant. They like to throw their life on the line that Nicholas punched Arius, and there are scholars that um, are willing to go into a bar with guys that are adamant about it and say, no, he didn't, and then they, can, they fight about it. So the fight continues. Um, the, the, the real fight that took place is one of truth. I mean, very few people, I don't think we, we all realize how intelligent Arius was. He was a catechist. He was a master of scripture. Um, and, and Arianism was very palpable to the mind. It's easily accessible. Um, and it, it pervaded through the church. It almost destroyed it. Uh, so N- Nicaea is huge. It's huge. I mean, it's <laughs> massive. That out of, out of that, the, the faith is preserved. This understanding of Christ is preserved. Um, and of course, if you preserve that, you preserve everything else. Okay? Everything. Everything falls, stands on the creed. Okay? Um, a couple other things, if you guys have never noticed this. Um, during the creed, um, the priest bows his head at three different times. He makes slight bows. So he bows his head at the acknowledgement of God the Father. Okay? He will bow his head at the mention of Jesus Christ. Actually, that happens all the way through Mass. And if you know Father Don, he's always telling you, oh, just said the holy name, better bow your head. Right? <laughs> okay. um, and, and at the word simul adorator, in reference to the third person of the Trinity, the priest bows his head. And right at the end of the creed, he makes the sign of the cross. And there it is again. Trinity incarnation. Trinity incarnation. Trinity incarnation. And everything we believe and pray comes from those things. Okay, which is why the Mass is always uh, comprising it. Okay? Pretty neat, huh? Okay. Um, A a couple things about um, the offertory itself and the the secret. Um, And then I want to just get to the right. I was really, really hoping, and I'm actually on time. Um, And I want to look through it and read, read through it. Okay, the, the offertory is rather simple. There's really not this deep, profound, well, everything's profound. Um, but the offertory is just that, an offering. So you remember when Mr. Bating said that liturgy isn't very practical? He's talking about processions. It's true. But 
offering is somewhat practical. Okay? Um, it's, it's just, it's something that we just do. Uh, people like to do. Okay? Um, and so the offertory actually is very appealing to our nature in some ways. One, it is this, the notion that Christ will offer himself to the Father on our behalf. But since we're members of Christ's body, we too make an offering of our heart. The priest will, will call out to us, right? It begins with him addressing the faithful and then saying, let's lift up our hearts, right? We lift them up to the Lord. There's something deep in man. Maybe that's not practical, it's not the right word, but it's constitutive of our makeup where we want to cry out to God and give ourselves to him and be united to him. And when we find out that God is true and good, he's the one true God, we also want to offer him everything that he's given us. We just want to sort of not be attached to it. Okay? There's little subtleties in the traditional Mass with the offertory. In the early church, the deacons would take the gifts, right? And they would bring them to the sick. That's what they did. Okay? Um, and in the traditional Mass, you still have little touching ceremonies that we sometimes miss because we can't see everything up there. But at the offertory, just before the, the, the chalice is offered, the deacon places his hand on the chalice. It's the last vestige liturgically that's there that still commemorates the deacon's role in the church as an assistant and carrier of the divine things to the sick. Okay? And we just, just kind of miss it because you don't see it, but that's what this class is for. Okay? Um, it's it's really, really beautiful. Okay? Um, we see in the subdiaconate, in the subdeacon who brings the gifts at the offertory and carries them in procession covered, right? which is proper to his role since he's ascending to the role of the priest. And he, it's like sort of liturgical expression of the care of the, the gifts that God has given us that we turn back to him. Okay, yes? Mm-hmm. I feel like there was one, one service that it was like uh, the guy who's from this parish, but yeah. so like the subdeacon is one of the minor orders mm-hmm. okay, of, of the church um, that one received on their way to the priesthood. Okay? It's not part of holy orders proper. Holy orders proper um, is comprised of a bishop, a priest, or a deacon. Those are the three levels of holy orders. But there were minor orders that men received as they made their way up through to becoming a priest. And those are exercised liturgically in various roles. Okay? Um, there, there is something, uh, if someone is made an acolyte, which is part of minor orders, it's not part of holy orders, but is part of minor orders, to be um, made an acolyte, an acolyte can serve as what's called a straw subdeacon out of necessity. He's a straw man. He's not a fake, but the liturgy demands someone for the role. And so law, law permits Dr. Sanders, who's an ordained acolyte, a commissioned acolyte, to serve as a straw deacon in a high mass. If there's no other properly ordained subdeacon. 
it's not a head altar server. Like he probably would feel really weird about that. <laughs> the head altar server is the MC, the person, the server that's the master of ceremonies that's next to the priest telling everyone what to do. It's just really cool that a server gets to do that. Okay? The minor orders are not part of the Novus Ordo. So the minor orders under Pope Paul VI were suppressed. So um, they are not part of um, the Latin church per se. However, um, there are a number of religious orders that have taken vows. Uh, uh, Orders like the priestly paternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King, and some others, they've actually taken vows um, and are established pontifical orders of religious life that preserve the traditional uh, life of the church. And that includes the minor order. So in that regard, there's still exercise in the church. I know that's a lot. I can't believe that's all in my head. Okay. Okay. Um, The secret, that's what it is. It's a secret. It's still in both masses. By the way, there's an offertory and a secret, both in the Novus Ordo and... Um, uh, the um, traditional Latin Mass. Uh, both the offertory and the secret are propers. Okay, what, what do I mean by that? It means that they are comp- composed prayers proper to that Mass, proper to that Sunday. So there is a offertory and a secret that is composed for Sunday. And we have that, so we'll look at those. Right? And they're going to tell us something. Because every prayer of the Mass tells us something, right? It prays what we believe, and then we give ourselves to it. Um, In the early church, the secret was sort of a simplified offertory. There wasn't sort of... the, The greater offertory we pray now is a development that happens sometime in the early Middle Ages as fruit of growth. But the secret was sort of the... The offertory, okay? Now the church just sort of has all of it, okay? Um, let's, let's take a look at those and let's apply our, um, our rule in this class. So um, I gave you this. And you can see the offertories in the middle section. And this is the first Sunday of Advent. Okay. By the way, the readings are hardcore. So read them tonight. Okay. And we've got Psalm 24. That's a good one. And the offertory. By the way, so we'll we'll get to the actual right, but what we got going on here is right, the gifts are brought up. There's the mingling of the water and the wine. There's the incensing of the altar, the gifts, all that's going on. The choir starts singing. Are you guys there? Can you see it in your minds? Mass? They're singing the offertory. They're chanting the offertory. Because all that stuff is going on. And if they get done, then Mr. Bating starts playing some killer offertory music on the organ. Okay? But that's what's happening. Okay? Is they're chanting the Word of God. So the Word of God's being made flesh to 
to our ears. The word is being chanted and sort of dropped down like dew. Okay? As all these gifts are prepared and the priest prays the offertory, incenses the gifts, and then gets ready to, to move on with the canon, okay? Or the preface, which is next week. So all, all of those things are happening. But these are the proper prayers for Sunday, the offertory. To thee have I lifted up my soul. In thee, O oh my God, I put my trust. Let me not be ashamed. Neither let my enemies laugh at me. For none of them that wait on thee shall be confounded. First Sunday of Advent. The church calls to mind Psalm 24. Let my enemies laugh at me. Who's our enemies? Who are our enemies? What's that? The ones who said no, I will not Who are they? Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, the world, the flesh, and the devil, at least that, that comprises the whole arena of enemies. The world. Okay? The flesh. I do what I don't want to do. Right? That's the great struggle. Okay. Actually, Jesus says only the violent will enter into heaven. Only those, only the violent will enter into heaven. He wasn't talking about like going out and gunning people down. He was talking about working with the Spirit to deny your flesh. That's super hard. You are your own worst enemy. Okay, and then of course the angelic world, the demons. Right? Who do? Who do? And we've forgotten that the modern world has forgotten that the greater the greater enemy is Satan and his hosts. They are real. They affect us every day. Every day. Okay. But we shall not be confounded. Okay. If we if we wait on the Lord, if I love that word, it's Advent. If we wait. On the Lord. If we wait on Him patiently, trusting, that's the heart of Advent. We pray what we believe. So think of all those realities in those, just that, that little prayer. Okay? And the secret, the secret, like the um, collect, um, usually joins in that theme and then always has something to do with the the things that will be received or the mysteries, the sanctification of those mysteries, primarily the gifts. And this week, the secret is, may these holy mysteries, what are the holy mysteries? What's the holy mysteries? You guys need to know this. You're praying it. You're Catholic. What are the holy mysteries? The Trinity is a holy mystery. What else is a holy mystery? The Eucharist. That, that right there on the altar will be the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of the crucified and risen Lord. Okay? It's awesome. Expressed 
visually to us in what looks like bread and wine. May these holy mysteries, O Lord, cleanse us by their powerful efficacy. What What happens when you receive the Eucharist in the state of grace? All your venial sins are forgiven. Anything else happen? An increase in sanctifying grace. Anything else happen? Angels become jealous. jealous. I like that. Power to overcome vices. Anything else happen? What's that? We commune with the one true God. Just let it be like waterfall, right? We become more intimately united with each other. What's the consequence of that? It means that as long as I remain in the state of grace, I can offer my life for you and it really matters. I can offer my life for someone else and it really matters. I can offer my life for the souls in purgatory and I get them out. I begin sharing immediately in the resurrection of the dead. And the death that's in me is crushed. I begin living. I'm life. That's what happens. That's efficacy. That's something you can't do on your own. You quickly realize you're just not a cell living in Christ's body. Rather, His life is animating through you and giving you life. And if you were to separate yourself from that, you would die. That's efficacy. You just, you enter into a reality where you're really not your own anymore. All of us have had a glimpse of that moment. We've all had it. I, I, I got to believe we've all had it. Not every Sunday, not every communion, but sometimes after receiving communion, it just feels like everything else melts away, Right? You can have you go going through like the worst, and you're just it's, there's just peace. There's just something. Just it's brief. It's quick, but it's real. Okay. We really believe those things happen in receiving the sacred mysteries. Okay, and the beautiful thing in the secret is it's like the priest prays it like a real see. It's almost like Remember, we're connected to the priest, right? It's the whole body. Is, and, the, and there's the priest sort of like whispering to God a secret. And th- that little secret's actualized in your life at the moment that that sacred host touches your tongue and you melt into God. Okay? Being Catholic is amazing. To, to live our Catholic faith is amazing. Our relationship with Christ is so personal and real and dynamic. It's just not ritualistic. These rituals are just getting us there to where something is more alive than we can ever experience. Okay? <coughs> Jesus is our secret. His life is our secret. Here, I'll finish it. And enable us to come with greater purity to Him who is their foundation. What's the truth there expressed this Advent? 
be perfect as my Father is perfect. Nothing unclean shall enter the kingdom. That's what the church is praying for us. That we, in our anticipation of His second coming, or if we die before then in our, in our, our particular judgment, we'll be able with our will to give ourselves and throw ourselves at His mercy so we can be made whole. And not only that, the truth buried in the secret is also the reality that your body will be immortal. That even somehow, if you were to die tomorrow and your soul goes to heaven, in your, in your mind, in your, in your knowledge, you'll know you're not completely whole, even though you can see God. You were made to be body and soul. And you'll know it. And now you'll be in heaven, so you can, you can wait. Remember, the liturgy is going on in heaven too. And you'll wait patiently for that day. When your body will be raised glorious. Then you'll know you're whole. Then you'll know as you're fully known. Okay? Awesome. The secret, by the way, is one of the prayers in the Mass that ends not with a Trinitarian formula and the closing of, it, of the prayer, but rather through Christ alone. Okay? Which is an important thing to highlight tonight. Okay, so it's per dominum Christum, through Christ, by Christ. Okay, because that's what the Eucharist is. Okay, any any questions on those prayers? Isn't that awesome? You guys are going to be like floating at mass. Okay, I hope you are. That'd be awesome. The bishop would show up. What's going on? Uh, you know, a few cuppertinos. Okay. Let's look at the, the right. Because I think it's important. Okay. So I'm on page 7. Page 7. Page 7 is in your, in your booklet, right? Your, pro, your class book. Okay. So the creed comes immediately after the gospel and the sermon. And there it is. In your booklet, it mentions more succinctly some of the things that I already discussed. The creed said on Sundays. Why is the creed said on Sunday? It's the day of the Lord's resurrection. If the creed encapsulates and brings us communion with God, that's what Christ did. He blasted open the sort of material doorways. It's not just seven days of creation with this anticipation on the Sabbath. It's moving actually into eternal life, an eighth day. So Sunday is a mini Easter. And the creed is deserving on Sundays. Okay. It's also said on certain feasts. So any major solemnity. You get the creed. Okay? In the older form, you get the creed with the apostles as well. Okay? And I think John the Baptist, who's total boss. And St. Joseph. 
who's even more bossy. Okay? And I, I love this little explanation there. The first part of the creed relates to God the Father and to creation. The second to God the Son and redemption. And the third to God the Holy Ghost and sanctification. That's why the church immediately follows. Okay? Right after the Holy Spirit. So the creed is Trinitarian. Okay? It's beautiful. Okay? We'll pray it at the end of the night, okay? That'll be our, our prayer. Okay, let's, let's move over. Page 8. Uh, I'm not going to sing it tonight. Oh, you guys are such a good class. Yeah, if I sang it, you would hate it. I don't want you to hate the creed. Uh, notice in the ordinary, um, uh, part two, it says, as we get to the offertory, it says, the what? The, right at the top, the sacrifice, right? So the offertory comprises the moving into the sacrificial nature of the Mass, okay? And the, the, the rite itself is immediately, the creed is over, we move into the offertory. Okay? The creed, in a sense, by professing it, we are able to enter into the Holy of Holies and the communion with God. And immediately the priest addresses the people. The Lord be with you. Right? That's, don't take that lightly, by the way. Anytime the priest says, the Lord be with you in Mass, and we respond with your spirit, it's an outward expression of this sort of a head communicating with the whole body. We're all in. Okay? We're, we're going somewhere together. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Okay? And then all of a sudden, the choir gets busy. And the offertory begins. If you're at Mass this Sunday, I, want you to, I really want you to watch how seamless the offertory is. And the actions by which it takes place that comprises the whole offertory, the movement, okay, with the servers, with the gifts, with the incensing, with the bows. I just, I really want you to, I can't, I can't do that here. It doesn't do justice. I want you just to take it in and be thinking about the sacrificial nature, the offering that is going to be offered to the Father. And I want you to see those lesser rites, particularly the mingling of the water and the wine, which is part of the offertory. Right? That, that's such a powerful, it's so quick, but that outward symbol that we're to share in divine life. Okay, that little drop of water just disappears. It's never seen again. That's what happens to you. Okay? God's more important than you are, so He's going to reign in you to such a degree that, you know, this old, the old will be made new. The old will never be seen again. You'll be glorious. Okay? 
Awesome. I think it's important to read the mass directions here because they teach us. The priest sings Oremus, okay, which is let us pray. Lettuce is the only vegetable in the mass. Okay? It's a praying vegetable. Okay? And the choir at once begins the offertory. The chant, like the introit, was once the accompaniment of a procession. There we are again. That impractical, right? Moving around. The people went up in order to, in order to the altar to offer the matter of the sacrifice, the bread and wine. We actually, that's been reinstituted in the Novus Ordo Mass. Okay? So something that came back in the reforming of the rites. It consisted, as the introit does this day, as a verse, a psalm, sung to a more or less elaborate chant, an antiphon to the psalm, which follows. When the people's offering was almost finished, Gloria Patri was sung, and then the antiphon was repeated. You'll notice during the Mass, anytime the, the Gloria Patri is sung, everyone bows. Right? Anytime in the liturgy we sing the Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you, you, you bow in acknowledgement to God. Okay. So remember that. At its close, the priest, having received the offerings, washes his hands and says the prayer now called the secret which then was, only the, was the only offertory prayer. Now that the people have ceased to go up to the altar at the offertory, the custom has remained of singing the antiphon alone without the psalm from which it was taken. The priest nowadays, between Aramis and the secret, says a series of prayers while the choir is singing the offertory. And I want to read those prayers because they teach us something as well. As the priest offers the wine, he says, Receive, O Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, this spotless host, which I, thine unworthy servant, offer unto thee, my living and true God, for my countless sins, trespasses, and omissions. Likewise, for all here present, that includes your countless sins, trespasses, and omissions. And for all the faithful Christians, whether living or dead, that includes the souls of purgatory. Again, lex orandi, lex credendi. We pray what we believe. The liturgy is the vehicle of salvation. That it may avail me and them to salvation and to life eternal. Um, therefore, the, from the offertory, we discover that the Mass is propitiatory. It's salutary. It truly forgives sins. And it must because it's the one sacrifice of Christ once and for all represented in time, in our time. Therefore, it has the efficacy to remove sin and to redeem. Okay. The priest now pours wine into the chalice. He has a few drops of water. These represent the faithful uniting themselves to Christ's offering. And the priest prays, O God, in who creating man did exalt his nature very wonderfully, and yet more wonderfully did establish it anew by the mystery signified in the mingling of this water and wine. Grant us to have a part in the Godhead of him who is vouchsafed to share our manhood 
Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, God, world without end. Amen. We offer up to thee, O Lord, the chalice of salvation, beseeching thee that of thy mercy our sacrifice may ascend with an odor of sweetness in the sight of thy divine majesty to avail for our own and for the whole world's salvation. Amen. And then there are the prayers of the children in the fiery furnace. Humbled in mind and contrite of heart, may we find favor with thee, O Lord, and may the sacrifice this day offer up be well-pleasing to thee, who are our Lord and our God. Come thou, the sanctifier, God Almighty, and everlasting, bless this sacrifice set forth to the glory of thy holy name. Remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's a reference to them in the fiery furnace, okay? who were willing to offer themselves. Okay? How does that apply to us? I think we get the big picture that Christ truly offers himself for the salvation of the world. But by being united to his body, it means that by uniting yourself here sacrificially and receiving Christ in the Eucharist, with the right disposition, you too share in the saving power of His redemption. What does that look like practically? It's, it's, it's that you fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions on behalf of His body, the church. It means that your sacrifices aren't arbitrary. As long as you willfully give yourself to them, they're efficacious with the very power of God. It also means that the love you possess as a human is elevated to a divine state, which means you can now love as God has loved. Up until this point, up until this moment in history, up until Christ doing this work, man was incapable of loving as God has loved. God's love actuates salvation and makes it possible for a sinful person to be made whole. You share in that power. You share in it. You can execute it actively. That's what we mean by works. Not our own works. Your Christ's body. His works. They're real. It's actually real. It's not something we think about or study. It's really real. The rosary that you don't feel any emotion toward that you're disturbed by because you don't feel like praying but you do it anyway it's real Christ takes that into account it's just, you just have to do it faithfully and it's real those souls in purgatory receive that peace and that grace if you offer it for them the person who's an unrepentant sinner is given an opportunity you don't see to repent Whether they do or not, they're free. But you offer it. You're in it. Okay? We're wasting a lot of time. We are. Stop. Yes. And I mean, if we know this, then things can change, not on our own account, but on the power of God. on On His power. So do it. Do it. And when you fail, don't be discouraged. Just get back on the saddle. Right? I was just telling the RCA group last 
night. We were, did the tour of the church, and we, we, we always ended the confessional. Dun, 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 right? <laughs> this thing that's like caked into the wall, you know, oh, and these doors, and can people hear me? And now I get all these questions. And, and, um, and I, I, I always tell them how beautiful confession is that it's, you, we can't give anything to God. There's nothing we can give to Him that He doesn't already have. The only thing we can give is our sins. That's the only thing we possess that He doesn't. And yet He loved us so much to take on our condition and say, I'll take those too. How beautiful is that? Just, if you fall, just bring Him what He came to get. Go get in line and drop them off. And guess what? This part of the Mass, as we read it, and pray it. And it's being prayed is the very power of that sacrament too. <laughs> Which is why we have confessions during Mass. Not because we just can, but because they're appropriate there. That's why the confessional's built into the wall. Because there's an economy going on. Want, 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 want. God saving man. God saving man. Want, want, want. Man becoming God. It's like, it doesn't stop. It's the, it's the economy of salvation. It's awesome. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would not worship the chocolate bunny. <laughs> um, no, they were. They were. Uh, they would not. They wouldn't worship um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And so they were. They were thrown into a furnace to die, and. One like the Son of Man entered the furnace, and they they were preserved from harm. And this world is a furnace. You're in it, and and the, the Son of Man entered into it to preserve you from all harm, to offer Himself, right? To to His burden is truly light. Right? His yoke is easy. It's pretty awesome, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah. Okay. Okay, let's, let's wrap this up. Okay. The incense, obviously, has meaning. And again, in the offertory, everything's incensed. So the gifts are incensed, right? The altar's incensed, right? And then the priest is incensed. And then the servers are incensed. And then who's incensed? So all of Christ. All, wh- wh- why do we do that? Not because everyone gets, gets a chance to have smoke blown in their face. It's because all of Christ is a fragrant offering. And incense is sweet smelling. And his sacrifice is a true offering to the Father. Yeah. Part of the importance of incense goes back to the Old Testament of everything that's holy. Would that stand to reason? Can you say that again? It's part of part of the reason of incense in the present Mass is. Partly a nod of the Old Testament and incensing everything that is holy. Well, I mean, we see incense early in Jewish worship, right? I mean, it's in, in the temple. Um, 
we see incense at Christ's birth and frankincense. Um, it's certainly part of temple worship. Um, the mass, obviously, is the fulfillment of temple worship because it's Christ is the temple. Okay? Um, and so we have that sort of vestige of the early Jewish worship being purified and fulfilled in the Catholic liturgy. And, of course, we see incense in, in heaven. So it's definitely something practical, I guess, about incense or symbolic in what it's doing for us, right? It, it, uh, it creates an immediate sense of awe and wonder. Little children love it, right? They like to follow the smoker. Um, it, it, ha- it has this sort of profound ability to settle in on a congregation. You immediately experience it through your senses, you smell it. It smells good. Um, it rises and falls, and then just settles. It has there's something divine about incense. There's something divine about smoke. I mean, smoke is just cool. <laughs> um, but yeah. Send up the sweet odor of incense. Break forth and blossom like the leaves. Send up the sweet odor of your hymn of praise. Bless the Lord for all he has done. You know, I think that it's amazing that when saints die, oftentimes they, their body exude a sweet odor. Yeah, I, I've always thought that our Lord's wounds will smell good too. Like when we see His wounds that He preserved, that they'll smell good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the five senses will have such a key role in our transfiguration. Yeah. I mean, the Blessed Mother, a lot of times, you know that she's near, you smell roses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, incense. Gotta love it. Okay, um, for the sake of time, I wish I could, I wish I could crank through all of this. I'm going to crunch this. Okay, um, we have this beautiful prayer about incensing to St. Michael the Archangel. So again, this real quick, this sort of notion, the angelic kingdom is involved in the Mass too. Working, okay. Um, we have the washing of the hands as part of the offertory. So it's referred to as the lavabo. Okay. The traditional lavabo comes from Psalm 25. It's, it's really beautiful. I, I do want to read it, right? I will wash my hands among the innocent and will compass thy altar, O Lord. Remember, the Psalms are prophecies of Christ. So it's, it's like in the lavabo, we see this total fulfillment of Psalm 25. It's being actualized in our midst. Christ is truly innocent, right? He is really vindicated here. I will wash my hands among the innocent, will compass thy altar, Lord, that I may hear the voice of praise and tell of all thy marvelous works. O Lord, I have loved the beauty of thy house and the place where thy glory dwelleth. Where does God's glory dwell? The glory of God is in man fully alive. St. Irenaeus. He dwells in you. Take not away my soul, O God, 
with the wicked, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands are iniquities. Their right hand is filled with gifts. But as for me, I have walked in my innocence. Redeem me and have mercy on me. My foot hath stood in the direct way. In the churches I will bless thee, O Lord. And then the glory be to the Father. And you'll see the priest bow toward the altar and the crucifix. Okay? The priest will immediately pray the, sh- the sushipe. Receive, O Holy Trinity, this oblation offered up to thee, offered up by us to thee in memory. Remember that weeks ago? In memory? Remember, memory makes present the saving action so you can participate in them. The passion, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord are all made present in the Mass. And in honor of the Blessed Mary, ever Virgin, of Blessed John the Baptist, of the Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul, of all thy saints whose relics are here, and of all thy saints that it may be to them for an increase of honor and to us of salvation. And may they whose memory we celebrate on earth vouchafe to intercede for us in heaven through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. Close of offertory, the priest turns around and says, Orate fratres, and then bids you to make it's almost creedal. Bids, bids you to make an act of faith. May the Lord receive this sacrifice at your hand for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of all his holy church. Amen. Okay. Sweet. Sweet. It's going to be the best offertory and secret you're ever going to have in your life. Okay. Um, are there any any last questions?